I'm back after a couple of weeks away, and one of the things that I committed to do at the start of this week was to return to the gym to work out. So when you travel for two weeks, I'm not one of those people uh, yet who, who thinks ahead and like figures out their workouts on vacation, right? Some of you are those people, and I respect you, but to me, vacation is a, is a, a vacation from the gym as well. And, um, and so when you have that two-week uh, break coming up, you know, it honestly doesn't motivate you that much to do much leading up to those two weeks, because you're like, I'm going to take a two-week break, and there's something about the psychology of that. So let's just say it's been more than two weeks. When I returned this week on Monday, it was hard. Uh, it was hard to get the motivation. It was hard to experience the soreness again. It was hard even to smell the gym, you know, um, just to walk back in like, oh yeah, I'm doing this again. And, uh, and it's just very hard to do that. And I wonder if you have thought about that phrase before, work out. We say it all the time, I should work out, or I missed my workout. And I wonder if you've ever thought about the phrase and what it means to work out. Just think about it for a second. To work out implies that there is something central or there's something, um, you know, an operating center. And then to work out means to, to move beyond that, to do something with effort away from that center point. If you think about it long enough, you'll get there. When we go to the gym, we're working out what is already there. I know it's a weird thing to think about, and this is going somewhere. But we don't go to the gym to form or to grow body parts. We don't say, I'm going to the gym because I need an arm or I need a leg. We say, I'm going to the gym to work out my arms or my legs or the core. I mean, if you do that, if you're one of those people, right? So we have something already. I know this is so basic that you, you almost have to think about it for a second for it to be true. But when you realize the truth of it, the body is a given. The body is a given. We have bodies that God gave to us. We have bodies that came from somewhere. And then suddenly when we say, I'm going to work out, what we're saying is this, that at least on some level, at least on some level, this body that was a given, I didn't create it, it just is me. On some level, that body is my responsibility. Because I have a body, because I've been given this, it means that I need to feed it. It means that I need to control it. It means that I need to work it out. And we rarely think about the fact that the body is a given. Now, why am I talking about this? Because the Bible uses this exact same type of language to talk about our salvation and obedience to God. There is another given. God, this passage teaches us, gives us enabling power and motivation to follow Him. Our spiritual life comes from Him. Just like our bodies are given, so our motivations, our desires to follow Him, our spiritual life is also given. Now, with that given, with that gift, there is also 
an expectation of responsibility. That we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the main point for today. The grace that God works into us enables us to work out obedience. The grace that God works into us enables us to work out obedience. But there's a problem. The problem is we don't want to go to the gym. The gymnasium of salvation. Just like our other workouts, we find a lot of reasons not to go. We find our motivation flags. We find that we resist the work because we realize that to work out what God has worked in is going to require effort, time, energy, sacrifice. And so this passage, these two verses, they pack a punch, but they are a call to us to return to the gym, to return to what God has already done in us, and then to work out what He has given us. Two questions I want to ask and answer this morning. First, what does God work into us? And then secondly, how do we work it out? What does God work into us? And secondly, how do we work it out? First, what does God work into us? This passage teaches us several things. The first and foremost being His very presence. God works in us by being present to us. Now, let me just read these verses again. The passage is very short, but it's, it's powerful to see the basic distinction that I'm talking about here. Look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." Now, the basic distinction is that the word work is used twice there. It's actually two different words. He says to work out your salvation. The word there means to produce results, to, to work on something, to produce something. And then he says, so work out that salvation because it is God who works. Different word. This word means something more like operates within, gives energy toward And then he adds the preposition, in. Work out what God works in. Both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In other words, to state it positively, this is what God, this is what happens in our salvation. This is what happens in our call to obedience. We work out what God has worked in. And to put it negatively, we cannot work out our salvation, unless God works in us to save us in the first place. Just like we cannot work out if we don't have a body. If we go to the gym and we don't have a body or maybe even a body part, we don't have that. So we don't have the given, then we cannot work out. So the same thing is true. Unless God works within us, His salvation, even the motivation to will and to do, then we don't have what we need. But here's the thing to realize first and foremost, God 
is within us. It says he works in us. That that, means that God is in us. God is the source of the power. We have nothing if he does not give us strength. If he does not animate us, then we are dead. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. You are dead in your trespasses and sins until God made you alive in Christ. Do you see what God has done by being present with us? He has made us alive to Him. This is the, a basic principle that God's work is first. We love, the Scripture says, because He first loved us. There is an enabling of God first. Now, this makes sense even when we think about our own bodies, because none of us chose to be in this world. We weren't asked. It was not our choice. One day, this happened for all of us, one day when we were very young, we started having memories, and we were told by other people who we are. I mean, just think about, think about your earliest memory. What's the earliest thing that you can remember? It probably involves a relationship, a mother or father or both, or siblings, and there's a sudden awareness, oh, I'm a person. Your life is a given, it's a gift, not a choice. And so God has been the one who has worked from the beginning. And this is true even of what He does through us. Our growth in grace, what we sometimes call sanctification, is that God is working in us. Hebrews 2.11 says this, For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. God is the source of all. So, what God works in, first and foremost, is His presence. Secondly, His motivation. His motivation. Look at verse 13 with me. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Our will and our work also comes from God. Now, this is a mysterious subject that we can only begin to touch the surface of what is the human will? What is it that we will to do? But we need to see that in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture, it teaches that in some significant sense, our wills are bound by God. That's what Martin Luther called it, the bondage of the will, the, the, the fact that God actually works and wills within us. Now, does that mean that we are robots or that, uh, you know, everything is predicted for us or, you know, some kind of computer program world that we live in that is not the case in some mysterious way that we can't understand? The Scripture teaches that God wills and works within us, but at the same time, at the same time, He does so in such a way that He does not violate what is called sometimes called secondary causes. I know we're going to get just philosophical for one second. In our our theology, our confessions of faith, we, we see that God is the first cause, but He does so in such a way that does not remove the responsibility for choices, secondary causes. The reason that you're here this morning, in other words, the reason that you may be interested in faith, maybe you've had faith for a long time, maybe you are here today for the first time in church for a long time, I don't know where you're coming from, but maybe there was a draw here of some kind. We believe it's because God has willed and worked within you. 
He is the first cause. But it didn't mean that you didn't also have to have motivation to get out of bed and to, to you know, arrange your schedule so that you can be here. There's not a violation of those two things. So the Bible talks this way. God, there is no conflict, for instance, in the book of Genesis when uh, Pharaoh is, is holding the people of God and not letting them go. And the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. These things coexist in some mysterious way. But see here, the beauty, rather than just thinking about all the tensions and what we don't understand, think about the beauty. God wills and works within you. The Canons of Dort, a summary of theology, say this about the subject of the human will. God also penetrates into the inmost being, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. God infuses new qualities into the will, which though heretofore dead, He quickens from being evil, disobedient, and refractory. I love that word. It means stubborn. From being evil, disobedient, and refractory, he renders it good, obedient, and pliable. Actuates and strengthens it, that, the, that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. God infuses the will with new qualities. In other words, what the scripture says is he takes our hearts of stone and he makes them hearts of flesh. He makes us tender towards him. You have to see that your motivation comes from God ultimately. His presence and his willing and working is what he works into us. The final thing that he works in is his son. How does God do these things? How does He indwell us? How is He present with us? How does He will and work within us? He does so. It is through the good pleasure of His Son. He gives us union with Jesus Christ who does these things on our behalf. What did Jesus do? Well, He willed and worked for God's good pleasure perfectly. The Scriptures go out of their way to say this. The Son does what the will of the Father is. John 8, 29. I always do, Jesus says, what pleases my Father. Jesus is also working for the Father. John 5, 17. The Father is working until now, and now I am working. I am, I am accomplishing salvation. I am doing the work that the Son is supposed to do. So Jesus always willed, and He always worked for God's good pleasure. He always did what was righteous. And so when we are united to Him, that's what God does to work inside of us. What God works into us is the righteousness of His own Son. Not our righteousness. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new birth. And that new birth is given as a gift. The Scriptures say, when you think about the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, this great teacher of the law, and he comes to Jesus and Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. He's like, I don't understand the mechanics of that. Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? In a sense, yes. In the same passive way that, that you were born and then suddenly you realize that your life was a gift, the same thing is true of your salvation. That if you find yourself in God and know Him, it is because you have been born of the Spirit. 
It has nothing to do with you at the, at the start. This is the work that God does. He works His Son into our hearts. He may be working Him in right this moment. This may be the means that God uses to give you the grace to, to see even this passage and see without Him working in me, I couldn't do anything. And it may cause you to run to Him and throw your, yourself at the throne of grace and to say, I need you to, to work in me more. I want to follow you, but I see that without you working in me, I would never even know that I should. Jesus, of course, says it best when He says, the branch cannot bear fruit unless it is attached to the vine. I am the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see our attachment to God, His work within us, our union with the Son, that's what God works in. It's all a work of God. It's all His grace. It's a given. It's a gift. It's a grace. And yet, we are called to work it out. What God works in we are called to work out. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do we do that? How do we work out salvation? Now, notice to begin with, it doesn't say work for your salvation. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace. It's on offer to everyone who responds in faith. This is a free gift. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out. You've already been given the salvation. Now work it out. Now how do we do that? Three things that we can see from this passage. Number one is with obedience. With obedience. This is the most essential commitment to working out our salvation is that we become obedient to God in everything. You notice that's what he talks about first with the Philippians. He says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you've always obeyed. See, the Philippians knew that when God gripped them with the grace of the gospel, it meant that they needed to be obedient to God. The word obedience just means to, to listen under it's often a military term for following a commanding officer, getting your marching orders to obey means that you follow what God says. Now, obedience is difficult. We're going to the gym now, by the way. This is the gym where we work out our salvation. And the gym is hard. Obedience is difficult. It means that you are, if, you, if you're going to listen under, if you're going to obey God, it means you need to know what God says. You need to know what His marching orders are. It means that you're searching out the Scriptures to know what the will of God is, and you're constantly looking at your own life, as we've just done in Confession of Sin today, where we said, these are your standards, this is your will, this is your law, and this is my life. And the two are not aligned, and it's painful to see those things. 
Obedience means that you may have to give some things up. It means that you may have to practice things that you haven't had seemingly time for before. It means that you'll have to place a guard over your tongue. It means that you're going to have to place a guard over your eyes. It means that you may have to lose friendships. It may, means that you might have to lose family members. All of these things are in the Scriptures. It is hard work to obey God. It would be good for all of us just to reread 1 Timothy 4. Maybe you could do that even this afternoon to see what Paul says about obedience and godliness. Here's a couple of phrases from 1 Timothy 4. Train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. That means it's going to be a process. That means there's going to be a regimen. There's going to be a, a discipline. Then he says, to this end, to godliness, we strive. We strive. The word strive there is agonizomai, where we get, I think you can hear the word, agony. It's not a pleasant process going to the gym. It can be agony. It can be sacrificial. It can be painful. But obedience is worthwhile. We, we're working out what God has worked in. The second thing I want to say about obedience is that obedience is not legalism. Obeying God is not legalism. Effort in the Christian life is not legalism. Sometimes that word gets thrown around a lot. What legalism is, is, is putting burdens on people or on yourself that are outside of God's word. Or it's a, it's a self-righteousness that, that accompanies your performance where you feel really good about yourself because of what you've done. But we are always called to look at the scriptures and to look at our own lives and to see where are they not matching up? Where do, am I called to obey God? Number one, with, with obedience. Number two, with resilience. With resilience. This is what the gem of salvation requires, that we be resilient. I'll give verse 12 with me. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, this is the second time that Paul has made a similar type of phrase in the book of Philippians. In the first book, he says the same thing. I want you to obey not only in my presence, but also in my absence. The Apostle Paul loves the, the Philippian church. This is a very positive book. It's an encouraging book. He's excited about their faith, but Paul is worried about something. What is he worried about? That their faith is tied too much to him. That part of their growing process has been a little too dependent on him. And he's like, I don't know if I'm going to make it back to you. I know that you obeyed while I was there, but my prayer is that you would obey when I'm gone. And I think that's why he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why, why put your own salvation? I think what he's saying is, work out your own salvation, meaning apart from me, apart from other people, you have a salvation with God. You have a life with God to be maintained. And sometimes we hear things like, 
indications that our faith is too much tied to other people. It's not resilient, in other words, on its own. People say things like, I used to be a Christian, I used to go to church, but a pastor was rude to me. Or, um, you know, someone demonstrated hypocrisy, or I went and nobody talked to me. And, and those things are real things. Hear me. Rude pastors are a problem. Hypocrisy is a problem. Not greet, being greeted at church is a problem. But your faith is not in a pastor. And it's not in another person. And it's not in a community only. Those things build it up. Those things help our faith. They equip us. But our faith is in Christ. When another person or a group of people have control over our faith, our faith really is in them, not in Christ. And so it's worth asking ourselves, what would disrupt my faith? What would knock me off course? Are you working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with resilience? The final thing is with reverence, with reverence. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is this fear and trembling? Like many times in the scripture, the word fear there does not refer to an abject terror. It's not what he's talking about here. This is what we might call relational fear. That is a reverence for another person with a desire to please, right? We say, well, I don't, I'm scared to tell my wife that. I'm scared to tell my husband that. What do we mean? We don't actually mean, hopefully, that we are in abject terror of saying something or doing something. What we mean is I have a reverence for who they are, and I think this is going to affect them negatively. That is the same idea, but it is serious business. The word trembling there is the same word where we get our word trauma, with fear and trembling. We cannot take lightly God's call to work out our salvation. In other words, what we need to see here is that salvation does not come from us. He doesn't say work for your salvation. Salvation does not come from us, but salvation must do something to us. It must change us. It must grip us. It must motivate us. We must expend the effort towards godliness. And we know this to be the case. Anything that's worth doing requires effort. Anything worth doing requires effort. And the Christian life takes effort. You want to run a marathon? You know you've got to train. Well, the Christian life is compared to a marathon, Hebrews 12. You want to become a soldier? There's training camp, there's officer school, there's daily disciplines, lots of discipline. Well, the, the scriptures call the Christian life the life of a soldier, 2 Timothy 2, and many other places. You want to stay married? You have to prioritize the time. You have to listen to one another. You have to work through burdens. You have to care about the other person. You have to serve them. It takes effort. Well, the Christian life is compared to, guess what? A marriage. Ephesians 5. The Christian life is not opposed to effort just because there's grace. The grace enables us. And then salvation calls us to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. I love, I think the scriptures and the, the Christian faith are unique. Beautifully unique. Because what this, these two verses capture us for us 
I'll close with this, is that on the one hand, God is able to comfort the crushed, and He's able to challenge the complacent. He is able to comfort the crushed and challenge the complacent. Here's what I mean. You may be in either one of those places. If you are crushed, if you are barely making it, if you believe that God is against you, if you are crushed by your own sin, if you are feeling so far apart from Him or maybe hanging on by a thread, then you need to hear verse 13. It is God who works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is not a performance. This is not showboating our ability. We don't work out, in other words, to flex before God. It's all of His grace. Not of yourself. And so if you're feeling crushed this morning, know that God is willing and able to give you enabling grace so that you can follow after Him. He is here to give Himself to you, not to require performance before He accepts you. But perhaps we're coming in a little complacent. We no longer fear God. We no longer fear damnation or feel like displeasing Him, but what we do feel is a little complacent, meaning uncaring, unmotivated, lazy. And what we need to hear is verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. J.C. Ryle, a great Christian writer, Puritan, said this, these seemingly contradictory things. The child of God has two great marks about him. He is known for, number one, his inner peace. And number two, for his inner warfare. How is that possible? How can two things exist in the human heart? Well, this captures it for us. These verses in Philippians saying to us, look, never lose the fact that God has worked in you from the beginning, that your life is a gift and that salvation is God's gift. Never lose that. I hope you can walk out of here with peace, knowing that it is not your effort that saves you, that what we come to at the table, it is God's gift to us. He gives us life in his name. And that then we are equipped in every way to walk out and wage warfare against the flesh. Against whatever sin may entangle us in the marathon, so to speak. God is able to comfort the crushed and challenge the complacent. And it's all found in the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is God who works in us. And yet we are called to work out that salvation. Let's pray. As we are gathered here together, Father, I know that there are 
those who are crushed, and those who are complacent. Maybe there are parts of us that are both. Maybe we find ourselves a mixed bag of shame and guilt and also uncaring, unmotivated. And I pray that what would be on display for us is Jesus Christ, who accomplished salvation for us and yet also showed us how to will and how to work as pleases you. So I pray that you would grip us with grace and you would grip us with conviction at the same time. That what we'd really find is a new life in you, a life that is completely sustained by your grace and yet is also energizing towards obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.